Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. And this week, we're going to hear from Tom Kahn. He's a veteran Democratic congressional staffer who is concerned that both parties have abandoned fiscal responsibility. Concord's National Field Director, Phil Smith, is joining me for the program. Uh, first, a little background about Tom. I mentioned that uh, he spent several years, 33 years, in fact, on Capitol Hill. He's currently a faculty fellow at the Center for Congressional and Pre uh, Presidential Studies at American University, where he lectures on Congress and federal budgeting. Uh, he actually spent 20 years as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee uh, on the Democratic side. And he's been involved in many, many high profile budget negotiations, including the balanced budget agreement of 1997 and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. Tom, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be on and a great honor. I was, I'm, I've been delighted to be invited. I've been well, a, a, a fan of uh, Concord Coalition from many years back to my days on the Hill. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll give a little plug for Concord because I'm not getting paid for this. Um, Concord is, was always and remains really a, a trusted uh, voice on, on budget and fiscal issues, uh, accurate, thoughtful, responsible, timely. Um, it's really the go-to place when we needed information from the outside when I worked at the budget committee and to this very day I now teach about it. So so it's a really an honor when you uh, uh, sent me an email and invited me on the show. Well, that's all we have time for today, folks. That's great. That's, <laughs> that's just wrap it really up right now. <laughs> I mean every word of that. Well, thanks, Tom. That's uh, We've been big fans of yours as well and appreciate your, your work on the Hill and, uh, and continuing uh, at at American University, which we'll talk about in a minute, but um, you recently wrote a, a, a editorial op-ed for the uh, Wall Street Journal, and uh, you know you 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 mentioned that uh, to give you a small quote here, you said it was smart to borrow when Congress passed COVID relief to jumpstart the economy, but with strong economic growth projections coming from CBO and most private forecasters, we should start borrowing less and paying for more. Doesn't seem to be the track that we're on. Uh, Tom, what was, uh, what was your thinking in, in, in what motivated you to, to do this uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal? So basically I had three goals. The first one was, um, I think it's really critical that we start focusing more on the debt. Um, and uh, you know, I think we all know the numbers that the deficit has tripled since 2019. Um, three trillion dollars. Now we're up to I think, 22, 21, 22, 23 trillion dollars um, national debt. 
So number one, I think it's time we've got to focus again on the debt and deficit. Um, secondly, um, I, th I think it's important that these infrastructure bills, the new ones, actually be offset. Um, you know, it's fine for the, the, the COVID relief bill, the first one, not to be offset because we needed to kickstart the economy, but now we're recovering. And then third, I'll be very frank, I don't like the fact that I see um, my fellow Democrats are using some of the, some of the same budget gimmicks um, to claim the bills paid for that, that we attacked Republicans for using to pay for tax cuts. Um, we call this voodoo economics when they used it and um, the dynamic scoring. And um, I remember those attacks so well because I used to write them. <laughs> and um, so I think we just need to be consistent. And frankly, um, I think it's critical to pay for it. And, and I, I now I've, I've got my, my Democratic hat on. I think that we, the Biden proposal does pay for it. It actually more than pays for it. It actually, starting in year 15, it actually starts cutting the deficit. And the Biden proposal calls for tax increases on the wealthy and tax increases on corporations, both of whom saw significant tax cuts during the Trump administration. And um, so I think it's time to rejigger um, uh, and, and have the rich pay more. Um, and uh, I think deficits and debts are, are really uh, corrosive. So those were the three reasons. The article didn't make everybody happy. Um, I, I wrote that I was proud of Democrats' long record of fiscal responsibility. One person at the Wall Street Journal wrote back saying that I should have my sanity checked for saying that. And um, I will say my, my wife has often suggested I should have my sanity checked as well, but not, not for the article. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I got a lot of good feedback, both from Republicans and Democrats, including a number of members of Congress saying, you know, keep doing it. So um, I, I really was encouraged overall. There is a, uh, a, a bit of a, uh, a history to, to your earlier point. I mean, we did have in the Clinton administration, a uh, substantial reduction in, in deficits. I mean, that's where the Concord Coalition started was 1992. And the deficit came down every year and then turned into surpluses for into the uh, Bush administration. And uh, then, of course, the deficit ballooned again. And combination of tax cuts and war spending, uh, budget restraints uh, giving way and uh, and then we had a, of course a, a huge explosion in in, in debt uh, because of the uh, 2008 2009 recession and and then it was the Obama administration that uh, began reducing deficits at that time uh, so it it there is some uh, some justification for your um, uh, and of course, it, it, the deficit went up again under Trump. So there's—I know people go back and forth on that, but there there has been a history of deficits actually being reduced in Democratic administrations and being increased in Republican administrations. When you actually look at at the record, well, that's right. And you know what's interesting is—I mean—I I give uh, I give uh, Democrats credit, even with this infrastructure bill, because at least they're trying to pay for, for these programs. Um, they are raising taxes and, um, and the bipartisan bill as well. Um, 
which is Republican and Democrat, um, they're making an effort to pay for it, which is frankly more than you can say for the, the Trump tax cuts or the, the Bush two tax cuts. And by the way, I, I think fiscal responsibility, certainly there are, are many Republicans who, who uh, have a very proud record too. And I, I go back, you, you mentioned Clinton and I'm really showing my age now, but I remember uh, George Bush, the first George Bush and the 1990 uh, uh, agreement um, which was the first time that we uh, uh, set caps in place and we established PAYGO and, and did some serious deficit reduction. That actually cost President Bush his, his re-election. Um, but there are a lot of Republicans that are serious about um, fiscal restraint. But I, I honestly, I think the Democrats have a, um, a lot more to crow about, which is why I'm a little disappointed that this bill is not more paid for. And I'm afraid that the uh, reconciliation bill, which is gonna come right after the bipartisan bill, um, only half of that is going to be offset as well. So, uh, Phil, I want to bring you uh, into the conversation here. Um... Thank you, Bob. Uh, Tom, it's great to be with you today. And as a seasoned Hill veteran, you're one of the few people I know who actually remember my boss, uh, Congressman Doug Bernard, who I worked for on the Hill. And times were really different back then in, in many, many ways. I, and I look back at that time period and kind of uh, what Bob was saying just now about fiscal discipline in both parties, uh, both parties seem to used to care about deficits back at least in the 90s. Um, and some people even say now that the entire budget process is is broken or maybe even dead. Uh, do you think that's true? And if so, what can we do to fix it? Wow, that, that is a, the short answer to your question is I think I don't know if the budget process is broken, but it's got serious problems. Um, you know, as evidenced by the fact that uh, most years, at least half more in the last several, we haven't even passed a budget resolution. That goes back at least to 2010. I remember last time we were in the majority and John Spratt was here, we couldn't pass a budget resolution. And since then, basically reconciliation has been used by the majority party to um, implement its um, agenda in the Republican case to pass its tax cuts and now Democrats to pass the infrastructure. Um, reconciliation is not being used for what I think it, it ought to be used for, which is um, deficit reduction. Uh, but, but I might add, by the way, parenthetically, that uh, back to Bob's point before about the Obama administration, two things. Number one, um, Obamacare actually, which was passed through reconciliation, I had the honor to work on that, that actually reduced the deficit. Um, not only was that fully offset Obamacare, but it actually cut spending, um, or, or I shouldn't say cut spending, but overall with the tax increases and in the, in the spending, it actually cut the deficit. And then we had the Budget Control Act. Um, that was a bipartisan agreement that put caps on spending and, and some restraints on mandatory as well. Um, but to your other question, um, how do you fix it? That's that's really a that is a, a, a fundamental question. And I'll, frankly, I don't think you can create a process to fix the problem unless you have the political will to do it. And um, we're losing that political will. <clears throat> I think the Republican Party clearly so um, under Donald Trump. What's ironic is not only uh, the, the tax cuts, the one point nine trillion dollars none of which was offset, not a penny, no effort to do so. Uh, but, but spending increased wildly under the Trump administration. No Republican uttered a complaint about that. 
And now with Democrats back in charge, I think there is more concern about the deficit. President Biden, to his credit, said that his, his proposals will not add to the deficit. Um, and the proposal he sent to the Hill actually doesn't. Um, and you see some effort um, to, to pay for it. Um, in the Well, we'll see what happens with reconciliation, but on a bipartisan bill. But by and large, to your point, we're, we're, we've been losing the will in both parties. And, and I think that's really a great concern. And uh, that's why I think the role of the Concord Coalition is, is frankly more important than it's ever been before, because you, you guys are the ones that sound the trumpet. You know, back to the Concord Coalition, the uh, history of Concord and Lexington. So, so you know, we, you, you mentioned uh, reconciliation and uh, sort of going back a little bit with that concept and uh, linking it to the, the future. As I recall, when I first started working on these issues, which was 1990, 1992, reconciliation was what you did to cut the deficit. It was to facilitate hard choices because spending on you know major programs, entitlement programs are sometimes called or mandatory spending and tax increases are difficult votes. And so you might not be able to get 60 votes. So they created this process that you could avoid the, the Senate unlimited debate or filibuster. So I always thought of, recon I, I was taught when I started that you know we, we want a reconciliation bill because we wanna be able to reduce the deficit. And sometime or, or other, it, it flipped. <laughs> and, and now we fear reconciliation bills because they've been a, a fast track for expanding the deficit. When did that happen, Tom? And, and how, did, how did that happen? That was a, that's kind of a strange uh, development. Well, that started in 2001 under, under uh, Bush II. Um, and he had, uh, President Bush II had two tax cuts and they passed under reconciliation notwithstanding aggressive democratic opposition. Um, uh, so, you know, you're absolutely right. And then of course, under President Trump, uh, his tax cuts also passed through reconciliation. There was a rule, it's very interesting, um, Bob, you probably remember this, and Phil, um, in, um, when, when, when President Obama was in office, uh, the Senate adopted what was called the Conrad Rule and for the Senate. And the Conrad Rule actually provided that reconciliation could not be used to add to the deficit. It prohibited it. Um, unfortunately, um, that rule was, was later uh, repealed. But, but you're absolutely right. And, and in my mind, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a, a, um, uh, a misuse, a gross misuse and abuse actually of the reconciliation process to add to the deficit as, as opposed, at a bare minimum to be deficit neutral, frankly, um, but certainly not to add to the deficit. Uh, and, and honestly, I, there is no reason in the world why this um, three and a half trillion dollar tax, uh, sorry, uh, infrastructure bill, uh, I'm talking about the second bill, or the first bill for that matter, not be um, offset. There are plenty of ways you can pay for it. And it doesn't have to be just through tax increases. There, there are spending cuts that, uh, that can be implemented. Uh, they're a good policy, um, but it's hard to do, you know. Uh, actually, to you make an interesting point before about, about how hard it is to pass tax increases or spending cuts. And it reminds me that it's no politician has ever gone back to his voters and uh, gotten rounds of applause for saying, I just raised your taxes or I just cut the benefits that you love the most. And, um, you know, uh, 
So sometimes good policy is not necessarily good politics in the short run. But you know, in the long run, actually, deficit reduction, or, or I should say fiscal responsibility, actually is good politics. Because if you don't control the deficit and you don't control the debt, ultimately what you're going to have is much higher interest rates, higher inflation, and obviously that's bad politics. So I think there is a, 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 a fiscal bonus, a reward over the long term. Let's hope so. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. Uh, I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Phil Smith and I have been discussing the bipartisan breakdown in fiscal responsibility with American University Professor Tom Kahn, former Democratic Staff Director for the House Budget Committee. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And Phil Smith and I are discussing the bipartisan breakdown in fiscal responsibility with American University Professor Tom Kahn, who is a former Democratic Staff Director of the House Budget Committee. I wanted to, to, to talk about the, uh, the physical infrastructure bill uh, that the Senate has been dealing with. And, you know, the idea was that it was going to be paid for. Uh, uh, certainly a good goal. And the that was a bipartisan goal. And they worked very, very hard on it. The Congressional Budget Office took a look and said that it fell short by $256 billion that would uh, add, add to the deficit. Now, I know that some of the proponents uh, take issue with CBO scoring on that. But um, were there some scoring issues with that that uh, I mean, were you disappointed that the bill was not paid for under CBO's score? Oh, I, I was disappointed in it. I was disappointed that it was not paid for. And I was disappointed that senators didn't make an effort once the CBO score came out to try to, to close that gap. Um, and actually, Bob, the, the $256 billion that CBO projected um, really understated the impact on the deficit um, because, and, and forgive me, I'm going to get into a little bit of budget wonkiness here. But um, because of the, of the way the hard infrastructure bill was written, it actually will increase the baseline for transportation costs, for highway costs, um, by uh, raising contract authority. And as a result, when you build that into, by I think that by about $150 billion, um, when you in include that, as, as CBO did not count that, but when you include that, actually the impact on the deficit is $400 billion. And then you look at some of the gimmicks that they used to pay for it or say they paid for it. Um, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, one of them is uh, they claim five, sorry, $53 billion uh, from lower unemployment insurance spending. Um, they claim that as a savings uh, that the bill uh, is responsible for. But the fact is that that savings would have gone into effect anyway because of a stronger, a stronger economy and a lower unemployment rate. So they're taking credit for something that actually would have happened regardless. Um, and then in addition, um, they use dynamic scoring of $56 billion, which you know, is very controversial and dynamic scoring is so iffy uh, and uncertain that CBO does not include it in its score. Uh, and then another example is um, they include $9 billion in Medicare provider cuts in, in the 10th year. And we all know those will get repealed. Um, so that, you know, it, it's chock full of examples like that where there's so-called savings that they're 
frankly, really are not. Yeah, so they, they some of those struck out uh, uh, to me also. And just to, to sort of reiterate, some of these things are... You know, if you if you enact a savings, it's going to take place 10 years from now. That's that's kind of a clue. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. Uh, and there's a long history of that sort of thing. And I thought they were particularly um, a, a clever and claiming credit for things that had already happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I was you know, what I was thinking, Tom, is I don't know whether anybody's ever tried this, is you could say maybe. Let's take as an offset um, all federal income tax for the month of October. <laughs> We're going exactly. to take. That's exactly, that's exactly what it would be like. And you know, uh, you, you know, you're you're, you're so right about uh, you know an offset for the tenth year, a cut for the tenth year. I mean, that's the problem is that you put these cuts in the bill and then Congress ultimately repeals them. Uh, we saw that, frankly, with the Budget Control Act over and over. It had ten years of spending caps and, and, and almost every year, Congress actually raised the caps, notwithstanding what was in the law. Um, another kind of gimmick is the, the sunsets. And um, you see that in, frankly, in, in both spending and in tax cut bills. And, you know, for example, the Trump tax cuts sunset after the 10th year, they, they just went away. So did the Bush tax cuts. You remember the estate tax repeal, um, I think in year 10, there was no estate tax. And then year 11, um, uh, it, it snapped back into place. So, uh, you know, the joke was there were a lot of people who were going to rush to die before December 31st. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> the families wouldn't have to pay an estate tax. Uh, but, you know, we all know that, that many of those tax cuts are going to be extended after, you know, before they, they are fully repealed. Uh, and, and similar with the spending programs. You know, Congress just as once a program starts, it's darn hard to get rid of it, you know, as we all know. And so Congress will extend that too. So, you know, there are all sorts of tricks, but, you know, at least, listen, you know, it's better than nothing. At least there's a, a feigned attempt to try to address the deficit. Um, but to your point before, Bob, um, I think we re need to really redouble our efforts to send the message to American people that deficits and debts really do matter. Um, um, first of all, uh, just a, a probably the least important, but also, but sort of an interesting factor with deficits and debt is that it requires the uh, government to pay interest on it every year, several hundred billion dollars to bondholders. That's one of the fastest growing parts of the uh, the federal uh, the federal budget. That is completely wasted money. Not one penny of it goes for a Meals on Wheels program or for to. Uh, to help a kid with a school lunch program or, or anything or to, to, to buy a new missile for the Pentagon. Uh, it's just money that goes to bondholders. I mean, many of, them, of whom are overseas. Uh, and, you know, so debt service is just really a, an unfortunate part of the budget. But, you know, more broadly in terms of the deficits and debt, um, ultimately, and, and we don't know when we're going to hit the wall, um, but we do know that, that in interest rates do go up and we cannot bank on the, you know, it's great that interest rates are so low and it's great that we can borrow right now at, at low rates, um, but that's not gonna happen forever. And what do we do when interest rates really start climbing and the deficit in the debts really start expanding? Um, you know, and ultimately uh, investors, uh, institutions 
are going to demand a high premium in order to, to, to buy our bonds. Uh, then we're in a real fiscal crisis. And at that point, and this is really, I, I think, really most important. I know conquer coalitions made this over and over. If you wait that long and you have to start addressing the debt then, the consequences are going to be overwhelmingly draconian dramatic. The kinds of tax increases that will require and the kind of spending cuts that will be required will be just absolutely devastating for the economy. So, you know, um, forgive me, I don't mean to give a speech about this, but, you know, it's something I feel very passionately about. Somebody once said, you know, you fix the roof when the sun is shining. And, um, you know, when you're in a strong economy is the time to start addressing the deficit and debt, not when you're in time of an economic crisis. Phil, you want to jump in here? Sure, Tom, out in the field uh, where I've been spending a lot of time virtually over the past year and a half, uh, we've been getting a lot of questions about MMT or modern monetary theory, which essentially you know, argues that we can just print money to solve our problem, that we don't have to worry about priorities of you know, uh, tax policy and, and, and don't have to raise taxes or cut spending and so forth. Uh, it seems too good to be true. What's your take on MMT? Well, I think you just put your finger on it. When something is too good to be true, it probably isn't true. And um, I mean, it, it, the notion of it is a little counterintuitive. Um, the idea that you can borrow and borrow and borrow and that the debt is irrelevant, um, it's illogical. Um, you need to service the debt. You need to pay the debt. And um, you need to keep borrowing and borrow more and more. And what do you do when interest rates go up? What do you do when bondholders don't want to hold your bonds anymore? We're very fortunate right now because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world and, and U.S. bonds are the bonds that the investors want to buy. But that's not a, a done deal. That doesn't mean that's going to happen forever. Uh, uh, and um, so, you know, it, it, it's really illogical. And I'm, I'm glad to see, by the way, that I think more mainstream economists, because I think MMT is really sort of... Um, sort of kind of way out there. I don't want to call it the fringe, but it's way out there. Uh, you know, even people, you know, people like Jason Furman and Larry Summers had I found a, a good article in the foreign affairs uh, about deficits and debt. Uh, I don't agree with everything in it, but even they acknowledge that the deficits and debts are something we do need to worry about. Um, 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 and we ought to be paying for things. I think that was their point. Kind of crack up sometimes when I've debated some MMT enthusiasts because uh, they will give in on on raising taxes at one at some point when you say, well, you know, what happens when inflation goes hog wild? And their answer is, oh, well, it's just super easy. We'll just get the Congress and the president to very quickly raise taxes substantially. And I don't know about your experience on the Hill, but in my experience, it's very hard to get Congress to do something like that really quickly. It seems a little pie in the sky to think that federal policymakers could react that quickly um, in a scenario like that. It, it's, it's very hard for Congress to do anything quickly. And, you know, to that point, if interest rates really start climbing to the point that you need to raise taxes, then you're really in, in an economically challenged time. And that, frankly, is the worst time to raise taxes. You know, you don't want to raise taxes, you know, when the economy is in, is in a recession or an economic crisis, because that's going to drive the economy even deeper into the ditch. That's why I said before, the time to address these problems is when the economy is doing well, not when the economy is doing badly. 
Uh, I, think, I don't know if it was Milton Friedman or a great economist said, uh, maybe it was John Maynard Keynes, he said that um, something that can't last forever won't. And you know, by analogy to the debt, you, I mean, it, it, it just, I mean, it's so illogical to the notion that how much ever you borrow, notwithstanding the size of the company. I will just say one thing that, you know, I think debt is, um, and, and how much you can afford for debt is, is related to the size of your economy and how much you can afford. And, uh, you know, it's like a mortgage. And uh, somebody who is very relatively modest income can afford a, a modest uh, mortgage to pay. Somebody who's very wealthy can afford a much larger mortgage. Um, but there is a correlation between your wealth, the size of your economy, and how much you can afford to borrow. Uh, and when when that link is broken, is when you end up in, in an economic crisis. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith and I have been discussing the bipartisan breakdown in fiscal responsibility with American University professor Tom Kahn, who's a former Democratic staff director of the House Budget Committee. And we'll be right back with uh, Tom after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And Phil Smith and I are discussing the uh, current budget situation in Washington, the breakdown in fiscal discipline, uh, the bipartisan breakdown. And uh, we're, we're discussing this with uh, Tom Kahn, who's a professor at American University and for many years was the Democratic staff director of the House Budget Committee and has been fighting the good fight on fiscal responsibility for a long time. Um, Tom, I think that for people that don't follow this on a on a daily basis, uh, which is understandable, there's a there can be a lot of confusion between what's going on now because they they just passed a uh, an infrastructure bill, a bipartisan infrastructure bill with a pretty pretty good uh, vote, um, 69 uh, to to 30, as as I recall, uh, but. But they're talking now about the budget resolution, and there is talk about a reconciliation bill that might cost three point five trillion or so. How does all that fit together? Fair enough. It, it, it's a great question, and uh, just again to underline what you just said, Bob, um, it, it is complicated, and, and most people, unless you follow the budget on a day to day basis. Don't are not aware of this, but the um, the first tranche was the the what I call the hard infrastructure bill, which was the the bridges, roads, tunnels, uh, broadband. Um, the second tranche is the and that that is the one trillion dollar bipartisan bill that that has just passed. The second tranche is the three and a half trillion, and the combination of those two, the one trillion plus the three and a half trillion, that is together. Um, represents uh, President Biden's request to the Congress um, for, for infrastructure. So the second tranche, not the hard um, infrastructure, the bridges rose, but the, what I, I like to call the soft infrastructure includes funding for things like uh, a daycare, uh, free uh, kindergarten, uh, free community college, and expansion of Medicare uh, for dental and other benefits. 
Um, that's three and a half trillion dollars. So that's that's obviously uh, triple the cost of the first part. That will only pass with democratic votes. That is not going to be bipartisan. Um, it will require every Democrat in the Senate and virtually every Democrat in the House. Now, that will pass under what's called reconciliation. And in order, well, the reason reconciliation was created was to bypass the filibuster in the Senate. Typically in the Senate, uh, 40 senators can, or 41 senators can kill any bill by talking it to death. So they created an exception for budget bills, and that's where that's where reconciliation came into play. Reconciliation, you only need 51 votes to pass something, not 60. So the first bill, again, to stress was bipartisan. That was not under reconciliation, but the second bill, the three and a half trillion, that will pass only with Democratic votes and only and only under reconciliation. All right, if you're with, with me so far. Now, in order to get reconciliation done, before you actually vote and pass the actual reconciliation bill, you need to pass what's called a budget resolution. The budget resolution is a broad general blueprint. It's a big picture document that lays out in big picture what the, what the reconciliation bill will do. That's what the Senate is debating right now. They should finish that in the next two or three days. And um, that will require only 51 votes, not 60 votes. Uh, that will probably require the vote of the vice president in order to break the tie. And again, as I said, that will be the broad blueprint. That will be the instructions to the different authorizing committees as to how much they can spend or how much they, they, can, they need to cut spending or how much in taxes they need to raise. So again, that's the broad blueprint. That will pass in the next couple of days. Once that passes, and then once the House passes the budget resolution and their identical bills, then you move to stage two of reconciliation. So the budget resolution is stage one of reconciliation. Once you pass that budget resolution, you move on to the reconciliation bill itself. And that's what the Senate and the House will do in September. That will be the bill that will raise taxes on the wealthy uh, and on corporations by one and a half trillion dollars or so. Uh, and that's what will spend the money, as I said before, on the soft infrastructure. So it's really, a, as I said before, it's a two-step process. There's the budget resolution and then there's the reconciliation bill. And that uh, reconciliation bill, it looks from the budget resolution, like they might try to offset about half of it. Uh, yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but out of the three and a half trillion, um, roughly half of that is required to be offset in the budget resolution. And the remaining $1.75 trillion, um, I think there's sort of hortatory language to the effect that you can pay for it, you might want to pay for it, it would be nice to pay for it, but the committees don't have to do that. And frankly, if they don't have to do that, they probably won't. And, and the reason for that is that um, raising taxes is, even among Democrats, is, is you know, not an easy thing to do. And while Democrats agree the taxes are going to have to pay for this, um, there's not an agreement on how much the taxes should be increased. And so, while the president has a significant increase, just as an example, 
on, cor on the corporate rate and on, on capital gains. I think what the, the congressional bill will do will have a significantly lower tax increase. They're going to have to make some some very difficult choices, and uh, that kind of leads me into something that uh, that you've done with your class uh, at American University. Phil, you you you've worked on that. You want to get into that discussion? Sure. Thank you, Bob. Uh, at Concord Coalition, we have a federal budget exercise titled "Principles and Priorities," <clears throat> in which uh, citizens or students can get together and try their hand at actually passing a budget. Uh, and it's different than a lot of things that you see online. Uh, it's pretty easy for one person to go in and just kind of check all the boxes. This is what I'd cut. This is what I'd expand and so forth. But when you have to add the group dynamic, which is what this exercise does, uh, it provides an experience for people. I think that it helps them understand why it's so difficult to get things done oftentimes in Congress. And so we've run this exercise all over the country. Uh, we've done it on college campuses. We've done it with members of Congress. And Tom, we've done it from people from the, I'm talking from the right to the left. We can run this exercise with anybody. We've run it with Virginia Fox, the Congress, the very conservative Congresswoman in North Carolina. Uh, we've run the exercise with the late John Lewis in his uh, liberal district in Atlanta. And of course, we've worked with lots of moderates of both the Democrats and Republicans. But I think the most impressive member of Congress we've ever had was the one we had in your class at American University, you had the chair of the Appropriations Committee speak <laughs> before we did the exercise. That had to have been a tremendous experience uh, for your students. Well, yeah, first of all, thank you for saying that because uh, the chair of the, so the new chair of the Appropriations Committee, Rosa DeLora, um, spoke. And I just have to say, uh, Rosa is, is, is a dear friend of 30 years. She, she was on the Budget Committee, is how I got to know her. But what was really moving um, was she was so in inspiring to the women in my class, and several of whom came up to me afterwards and said that her inspiring words actually um, encouraged them to even go into public service. But the exercise, I've, I've, I've used this exercise every time I've taught this class. And I, there are out there, there are several hundred students, maybe even one or two who are listening right now, um, who've gone through it. And every one of them, every single one of them, has absolutely loved it. And they've said three things uh, consistent with what you just said, Phil. Number one, they now have a much better idea how big the problem is, how, how huge the deficit is. Uh, they had no idea, you know, they hear the numbers, but it washes off of them. But when you actually tell them, now you've got to figure out how to, how to get rid of it, then they really understand the size of it. So number one, they have a better picture on how big the deficit is. Number two, they have a much better understanding of how hard it is to close the gap. Um, and uh, number three, uh, my favorite response, well, one of my favorite responses was when they say, well, I've enjoyed being in Congress, but after I've had to cast these votes to close the deficit, I think I'm gonna need to find another job. <laughs> um, and you know, I think that's actually a, a, a pretty astute observation about what the impacts can be. Actually, there's one more comment that they make, which I, I think is kind of funny and, and, and really is revealing. They say, you know, we had to make a decision on all these programs. And frankly, we just didn't feel that we had enough information on them or understand them well enough to make the votes. And I, to which I respond and feel, I know you respond because you hear the same thing I do, is you say to them, well, welcome to the uh, US Congress because that's what members of Congress have to do every single day is vote on things that they 
frankly, only have a very, very limited amount of information on it. But it's David. a terrific program, and uh, it's really a highlight, a highlight for my course. Well, thank you so much for having us, and uh, we hope to be back on your campus sure. one, one year, maybe even in person, Tom. Awesome. <laughs> I would love that. You're absolutely, you can plan on it. I think it's going to be, and I haven't sent you the formal invitation, but uh, sometime in November, we're going to get you back. And Rosa Dolores coming back as well, by the way. Fantastic. We're, we're also going to have Paul Ryan, so um, uh, chairman of the budget committee one time. So we, we'll have some fun. Your students have quite the experience. Now, I don't know of a professor anywhere in the country that can pull in that type of uh, uh, representation from uh, mem current members of Congress and former members of Congress. Well, you know, I, I'll never forget uh, uh, a couple of my student evaluations. You know, usually they were you know, very favorable, but I remember two or three would say, you know, he's a pretty good professor, but the outside speakers are fabulous. So I said, <laughs> okay, I'll, t I'll take it. I'll take a compliment anywhere I can get it. <laughs> that's that's uh, hey, listen, as host of that program, that's how I judge it. If people like the guests, you know, I uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, you know, if you get good guests, then people will come and, and listen to the show. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's really that hands-on experience is so much better than than charts and and graphs and that sort of thing, which exactly. certainly have their place, and uh, God knows we have enough of them. Uh, at the Concord Coalition, but the, what I like so much about it is it's just that face-to-face -face, um, contact between people, uh, even if they're wearing masks in these days. But but just the um, the uh, the fact that people tend to negotiate with each other kind of naturally, people that don't have the same point of view, and what I always like to look for when we do this um, in community events, is people coming out of the event, um, are they smiling? And a lot of times they are because they feel good about what they just did. They feel good about the fact that they, there were differences, maybe some sharp differences, that ultimately they, for one evening in, in any way, they worked their way through. And I, I you know, I know it's not a, a, a perfect, uh, setting because our our exercises aren't aren't real life but um i do think that the the that the public is more willing to engage when you get beyond the the surface um you know tensions that we see in so often i i i totally agree with that bob and 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 what what really is healthy is that there is good back and forth nobody wins everything there is compromise and that's only that's the only way that politics can work you know, um, everybody has to give a little to get something. And, you know, you put your fingers on something broader, it really goes, frankly, it goes beyond the budget. I think one of the greatest challenges this country has is the, is the deep divide, uh, the partisan divide between Republicans and Democrats, red and blue. And um, somehow as a nation and as a people, we need to come back together. You know, a bird cannot fly with just one wing. And uh, Republicans, love America, they love their family. Democrats love America and they love their family. Um, and we all want what's best for the country. And we need to see the good in each other. And we have to stop treating each other as enemies. We have to start treating each other as, as, as neighbors, as, as adversaries, maybe people we disagree with. We can fight like hell, but at the end of the day, uh, we can come back together. And I think that's what your budget exercise does, is it forces people to come to the table to make compromises uh, for the good of the country. 
Well, Tom, that's a good optimistic place to leave it. That's, uh, that's all we have time for this week. You've been listening to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby, your host. Phil Smith and I have been discussing the breakdown in fiscal discipline and maybe some hope for the future with, uh, with younger folks. Uh, with Tom Kahn, American University professor and a former director of the uh, Democratic side of the House Budget Committee. Tom, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This is Bob Bixby. See you next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 